0: Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 17. Ezekiel chapter 17. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we now come to your word and I pray that you would enable us to see it clearly, to understand it, that it would have its full uh, work in us. Father, I pray most especially today that you would use this word to bring to us tremendous hope. Hope in the gospel, hope in the very fact that Christ has come. Um, Thus, Father, I pray that you would work in us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 17 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow trig in its twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him, and the bed where it was planted that he might water it, it had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruits and become a noble vine. Thus, say thus, says the Lord, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? wither away on the bed where it sprouted. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know that what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him in Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up. And keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war, when mounds are cast up and siege walls are, cut off, uh, are built to cut off uh, many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Behold, he gave his hands and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely it is my oath that he despised in my covenant that he broke, I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar And will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it. That it might bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make the high And I make the high tree low. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it now. I think it's helpful for us to see what's going on in this group of chapters, chapters 15, 16, now 17, next week, uh, chapter 18. By the way, chapter 18 next week deals with one of the most fundamental of all the theological issues. Um, not fox trot, fox trot this week notwithstanding. Uh, how can free will and preordination, the preordination of God, coexist? That's an interesting question, but the one the Bible doesn't speak to. The one the Bible speaks to is the more fundamental question, which we'll take up next week, so I'll tell you about that next week. But in chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18, what we find here is, in a sense, if I could put it this way, God vindicating His own character showing that he really is faithful to his covenant promise. Because if he's not faithful to his covenant promises, then he's not trustworthy. And if he's not trustworthy, then not only his character is maligned, but we're sunk. And so it's important for us to see that God really is trustworthy. And and the reason I say that is that God made promises, a covenant, with Abraham. And the covenant that he made with Abraham was essentially... That there would be many descendants for Abraham. In fact, on one occasion, he had Abraham look up into the stars in the sky and say, Count them if you can. And of course, he couldn't. And he says, So shall your descendants be. That is, innumerable, uncountable, as the stars in the sky. Well, obviously, at this moment in time in history, things don't look good for the descendants of Abraham. The northern kingdom had already been destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, essentially, of whom Ezekiel is speaking, um, has already been uh, besieged by the Babylonians on a couple of occasions, so exiles have taken place. Now left in the land, left in Jerusalem, are only the humblest of the people. And now God is saying that the Babylonians will once again come. He's been saying this throughout all of Ezekiel. I, I trust you've gotten that by now but he said over and over again that the Babylonians are going to come and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so again, one has to ask the question, is God faithful to his covenant? Is he going to be able to fulfill this? Will there be descendants? Will there be ones like Abraham who by faith are counted righteous? That's the question. If that isn't true, we're sunk because God has made that promise. Now it seems as we work through all this, that God's judgment is reasonable. The people certainly have sinned against him. And that indeed is part of the covenant. You remember when God made this covenant with Abraham and then with Moses and so forth. He said there'll be blessings and curses. I will be your God, you will be my people. To be my people means that you're to honor me, that you're to depend upon me, that you're to allow me and to listen to me as I define what life is to be for you. You're to look to no one else for your provision, for your wisdom, and you're even to look to no one else for your forgiveness other than me. You're to come to me with your whole lives. That's living in my covenant. And if you don't... Then you'll be cursed. If you do, then the blessing of God will be upon you. That's the covenant. And we see that Israel, most specifically here those in Jerusalem at this moment in time. But throughout history, Israel had been unfaithful to God and thus the curse of the covenant was upon them. That seemed reasonable. But the question for us is, how can God do that and still have descendants by faith of Abraham? Can he really pull that off? And so as we go through these these little parables that he's given to us, first the one in chapter 15 about the vine, it made sense to us that if a vine doesn't produce fruit, it should be destroyed because vines are made for fruit. They're good for nothing else. And so God said, I made Israel to be a vine, it's producing no fruit, thus it'll be destroyed. And And that's logical to us. But the question is, if he does that, will he be able to be faithful to the blessing of his covenant? The second parable that we saw was this one of this abandoned child who ultimately became the bride, the wife of this man who loved her so. And yet this bride was not only unfaithful but was so unfaithful, so despicable in her unfaithfulness, so horrible in her unfaithfulness, that she even prostituted herself and used all that the husband had given her in order to attract other lovers, even to use what her husband had given her to pay other lovers. And God said, I've called Israel to be my bride. And she's been unfaithful. And so not only with the vine do we see the logic of judgment, but now with the bride we see the passion Of judgment. And yet. Is God able to be faithful to save. But we caught a glimpse with the vine. Because we realized that at a time. One would come who would be the vine. And who would be the one who would sprout branches. And those branches attached to the vine. Would bear fruit. And of course that vine would be Jesus. And then we caught a glimpse of hope as well. Because we realized that. That though Israel was an unfaithful bride. A groom would come for his bride and would die for her, would give himself for her, and would cleanse her and make her his very own. And that very one would be Jesus. And so it's through Jesus we see that God will be faithful to bring descendants. Now chapter 17, we have this parable. This riddle really is is the best. If you have an NIV, I think it says parable, but riddle is best. Puzzle. Um, it is a puzzle. If only you had the first uh, 10 verses, you'd be utterly probably lost in this. Uh, verses 11 and following help us to understand the meaning of it. Two eagles, Ezekiel tells the people, come. And the first eagle takes a twig of the top of the cedar, and he takes it to a city of merchants and he plants it. Then he takes seed and he plants it in the land and it becomes a a low vine. And that vine then continues, interestingly enough, to look to this eagle, to look to him, to look to this eagle for its sustenance. Then another eagle comes along. And that other eagle then seems to garner the attention of this vine. And now this vine looks to it. And then God asks the question, will this vine thrive? And you get the impression, it's not going to. What does that mean? Well, that was a picture of precisely what was going to occur. You can read about this in Jeremiah 37 or Second Kings chapters 24 and 25, which gives, especially the Second Kings passage, the history of it. What actually happened at this moment in time, uh, we found, of course, that the Babylonians had come in and exiled some of the people taken the, the very princes, the lofty ones off the cedar, and exiled them, the king. Put back in Jerusalem, one of its own, a seed in the land, planted King Zedekiah, who would be a puppet king there in Jerusalem. And as a puppet king, he would pay tribute or protection money to the Babylonians. And in a certain measure, as long as he was faithful to the Babylonians, then Jerusalem would be allowed to sort of thrive. It wouldn't become a real big vine, but a low vine, but a vine nonetheless. There would be some life there. But King Zedekiah got tired of the covenant that he had with the Babylonians, and he looked to Pharaoh, he looked to the Egyptians. Read about this in history. He looked to the Egyptians, And so he broke the covenant with the Babylonians and looked to the Egyptians to come up and on the behalf of Jerusalem fight the Babylonians. But the Egyptians liked that whole deal in the beginning but then faltered and never really did it. That really made Nebuchadnezzar mad. And that's when In 588, 587, 586 B.C., he came against Jerusalem and destroyed her. That's the story. But again, the question is, if Jerusalem is destroyed and all the people are exiled, is there any hope? Will God be able to fulfill His promise to Abraham? Will there be descendants? Well, certainly we see judgment. We understand the logic of that and the passion of that. But will there be real descendants? Is God going to be able to to do what we can't imagine Him doing? And that is be faithful to His covenant and fulfill His promise to Abraham, even though the Israelites broke covenant with God. And so this is verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself... Now that's a very, very significant expression. Not only in Ezekiel, but in our lives. Because what we'll find in the book of Ezekiel is that the prophets fail. The elders fail. The shepherds fail. And after each failure is God saying... I myself will come. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and I myself will plant it on a high And lofty mountain. God's going to do something. He's going to intervene. He's going to directly intervene. And I can't help, as I read that particular passage, think of a passage that, a couple of passages that we heard this morning as we were singing. The first from Isaiah and chapter 11. As God speaks of taking this twig, this tender branch, I can't help but think of Isaiah chapter 1, chapter 11 verse 1, where Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from its roots shall bear fruit and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and so forth. And here is what will be the result of this shoot coming. This one from the stump of Jesse. Verse 6 in chapter 11 of Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the land and the leopard. The lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little children shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall gaze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day... The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. You get the sense that Ezekiel and Isaiah are talking about the same thing happening. Peace. As Ezekiel talks about this great tree where all the birds come and make their nest. And Isaiah speaks of this shoot from Jesse. Who will come and bring rest. You get the sense, yes. It'll happen. Isaiah chapter 53, perhaps. As stunning. A prophetic passage in all the Bible. Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Still this shoot to come. This one who will be this great branch. Jeremiah speaks of the same thing. For instance in Jeremiah in chapter 23. In verse 5. Jeremiah the prophet writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. You see, you get this sense. That even though Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, that still something great is on the horizon, something great is going to happen. Somehow, out of this people will come this great, humongous blessing. But yet the people of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Notice, as we read on in Ezekiel 17, verse 23, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it might bear branches and produce fruits and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make the high tree low. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I'm the Lord. I've spoken. I'll do it. God says, listen, it isn't as it appears. Right now, you think the high tree is really strong and the low tree is really weak. That's all going to change. You think the green tree is really healthy and the dry tree is really sick. That's all going to change. You see? And that's exactly what happened. Because you see, the Babylonians, after a generation or so, gave way to the Persians. And the Persians just happened to have a king named Cyrus that Isaiah had already told us about. That's one of the most amazing passages. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28-ish, is a great piece of prophecy. Because even before the Persians were on the scene, Isaiah named this king who was going to come. That's dangerous as a prophet. It's one thing to hint, it's another thing to name. He said, Cyrus will come. And Cyrus did come. And when Cyrus came, he inherited, if you will, the Israelites, and he says, go back. All you who are from Jerusalem, just go back. Cyrus was quite a superstitious king. And he was afraid of all gods, though probably worshipped none. And so he said, you have a God and he lives in Jerusalem? Go back. And when you get there, tell him I sent you. Okay? Dumb Cyrus is a good guy. He was covering all the bases he thought he knew to cover. So they went back. And Zerubbabel, you remember, went back and rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah went back and rebuilt the walls. Ezra went back and reestablished the worship. But it wasn't quite with the glory that one would have expected from Ezekiel, it still wasn't it. It still wasn't the time when all the birds would come excuse me and nest there. It just wasn't just wasn't that glorious and difficulties would continue to come and you would begin you'd continue to look at the history of the people and wonder will God fulfill his promises? But then you see the shoot came. But you know when the shoot came, the shoot was really a shoot. It was just a twig. Didn't seem like much. We should have gotten that hint. In the sense that it was a shoot from Jesse. David wasn't that much. David was the youngest and the smallest. And when Samuel came to the house of Jesse. In order to anoint the next king after Saul. He went through all the big brothers. And then says. I I know he's in your family. But he can't be these. But they look like the next king. Do you have anything else? And they brought David. And you get the sense that Samuel went. No not him. But it was. Just a twig the chute. Nothing really to look at. In fact, when this chute came, it's, it's a wonder he even lived because his parentage was questionable. And his mom took a long donkey ride before delivery. I'm not a mom, I'm a dad, but I don't think that would have been a good suggestion. I wouldn't have wanted Joseph to say, just to get on the donkey. <laughs> and when they got there, of course, you know the story. It's... Think this through more at Christmas. But you know the story. You know what happened. The birth conditions weren't the best. The king of the land didn't want the child to be born. Created a bloodbath of young boys. Just to kill this very one. If he possibly could. He grew up. You know the opposition. To him. The scripture says he was nothing to look at. You wouldn't have looked at this boy or this man. And said that's the Messiah. It wasn't quite like that. As the great Christmas carol said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see veiled in flesh, veiled incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, you, you know that. So there he was, the opposition was great. Even his own followers didn't know exactly who they were following or why or any of that, they were confused a great deal of the time. It appears that the only ones who really knew who Jesus was were the demons. They felt the opposition, they felt the war, they felt the battle, they knew it was there. And then he was killed... The resurrection happened, of course, that was good news, but then he ascended and you wondered, will this really ever come to fruition? Will it ever come to pass, all that's been, been promised? Because he ascended, and yes, he sent his spirit, but still he left behind a group of ragtag followers who really really were uneducated, who didn't have much social standing, weren't very well connected, weren't very well thought of, and he gave a message that he left behind. that was a stumbling block for the Jews, and it sounded foolish to all the Gentiles, and so... How is it that they would ever break through? That the promise to Abraham that was reiterated in the promise to Ezekiel would really come to pass? How would this be? But it would all come, of course, through this very one Jesus. Though It looked like it would never, never, ever happen, take place. But he was the very one. For instance, Romans in chapter 4. In verse 9, of Jesus, is this blessing, that is the blessing of this covenant with Abraham, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, that is Jew and Gentile both? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness they had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Uncircumcised, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now I know I read that quickly, so take it home and really flesh it out. But what it's really saying clearly is this. The promise to Abraham that he would have descendants was not just simply or even about physical descendants, but spiritual descendants, those who had his faith, those who were like him in faith. Not those who were like him in looks, not those who were like him in, in genetics, but those who were like him in faith. And so now you see Jesus comes, the very shoots. And he says, yes, all of these descendants, Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of birds. Not just Israelite birds, but all kinds of birds. We're proof of that. We have strange birds, all kinds of birds. That's what, that's who nest in this nest, in this tree that's, that's planted. And you say, okay, It still, though, doesn't look like there are that many of us compared to how many there could be of us, compared to how many there are of everybody else. It just doesn't seem like this is really going to be that tremendous, this great, in fact, it appears as if a great deal of the time we're in the short end of the social stick here, that it doesn't seem like it's progressing to triumph. And of course, that's true, it never looks like that. Not with these eyes. That's why Jesus pulled his disciples around him on a particular day and told them a couple of parables. For instance, Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 26. And I must tell you, this is probably, you don't need to know what I'm about to tell you, so don't worry about this. This is just personal. But I'll tell you, what I'm about to read you sustains me more in life and ministry than almost any other passage in the Bible. You don't need, that's not a big deal because I could be wrong about that. But for me, this really sustains me. And I only say that because it's rather odd that you might think that these verses sustain me. If People ask me all the time, what are my favorite books or what are my favorite passages? It's pretty irrelevant. But if you want to know what sustains me day in and day out in ministry, it's this and I'll tell you why. So maybe it'll help sustain you. Jesus pulls his disciples together because, because he knows that they're going to be the ones God uses as we're the ones God uses in the midst of his fulfilling his promise of many descendants. And he doesn't want his disciples, on the one hand, to be naive, on the other hand, to get discouraged. And so he's going to tell them, I want you to know what this is like Just so you won't be surprised. Because you see, it's very easy for us to hear of the triumph of the gospel and to think that we're going to see it day in and day out. So that when we don't see it day in and day out, we may well get discouraged. And so Jesus said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how it really works. Verse 26. And he said, that is Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, What can we compare the kingdom of God With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. He didn't say this, but I'll add, just like Ezekiel said. Now how does that sustain us? Well, the first parable tells us something about the growing of this kingdom. You see, when Jesus comes, he brings the kingdom of of God, the very rule of God, the very rule of God that conquers sin and death, that very rule of God that conquers hearts of people and enables them, therefore, to believe and enter this kingdom. That very kingdom, that very rule of God that comes into the lives of people and enables them then to live out faithfulness to God this very kingdom of God, this very rule of God that rules over God's covenant and brings it to pass. The very kingdom of God comes. And it grows, you see. It will grow in triumph. Just like a seed grows and triumphs. You say, well, you know, you could use a seed for a lot of different illustrations. You could say that we plant, you know, that, that we must plant the seed. And water the seed. And fertilize the seed. And harvest the seed. And all of that. And if Jesus wanted to go in that direction. If he wanted to answer the question, what should we do with the seed? That may have been a pretty decent little parable. But that's not his point here. His point here is I want you to think of something else about the seed. There have been times, for instance, when I've driven across I-70 West, come back, and I've looked at these fields, and they're just brown, and I think, nothing will ever grow there. They're just brown dirt. But if a farmer had just planted that seed and heard me say that, knowing how ornery farmers can be, I bet he would just smile, and he'd go, he's stupid. He just can't see it. He didn't know that I put their seeds in there and, and they're going to come up. And the next time he drives out there, if it's the right season of the year, he'll see it all coming up and he'll go, how'd that happen? And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's the point. This seed is strong. This seed is powerful. Nothing can stop it. In fact, in this verse 28 says the earth produces by itself. Now that little by it, that little itself word in Greek, I don't do this to you very often, but in Greek is the word automatos, from which we get our word automatic. Jesus saying, listen, don't worry. It's going to happen. Don't worry. The tree is going to grow. Don't worry. The birds will come. Don't worry. A day will come. You won't see it till I come back. The day will come when you'll look around in the tree and there'll be all kinds of birds because nothing can stop this. Hell can't stop it. Disease can't stop it. Your stupidity can't stop it. Your sin can't stop it. Your ineptness can't stop it. The governments of the world can't stop it. The philosophies of life can't stop it. The educational institutions can't stop it. Your neighbors can't stop it. Your kids can't stop it. Your parents can't stop it. It can't be stopped. It will grow. That is true. There will be descendants from every species of bird, every kind of person. It will happen. Nothing really can stop it. And you say, but, but, but but Jesus, it doesn't look like It's all that significant. It doesn't look like it's all that big. It doesn't look like all that's really happening. And he says, well, then let me tell you another story. Look at this little mustard seed. You say, but Jesus, I can't see it. That's the point. You can't see it, but it's small. Let me take you to the garden. Which is the biggest bush out here? Oh, the mustard one. From the mustard seed. Oh, that's right. You can't see it. It looks really small. I mean, when Jesus first showed up on the earth, he was a baby. He didn't look like much. Everything was against him. And then he grew. But everyone was still against him. And he died. He came back. He ascended. He left this ragtag band of followers. It didn't look like much. It didn't appear as if it would even last the week. And yet, it goes. Why? Because it's powerful. Nothing can stop it, it will grow and you say, but Jesus, I look into my own life and I even look there and I see all the difficulties that I have and all the struggles that I have and I even wonder if I'm going to be able to maintain in my own life this "Don't no. the seed is there if Christ has come if you've believed if you've trusted if you're persevering it'll grow, it'll happen it really will But I look at my wife and I wonder about her and I look at my husband and I wonder about him and I look at the people in my church and I wonder about them and I... I, (sighs) There's time to wonder. There's time to be concerned. But right now, just stop, he says. And understand how this works. It will grow. Trust me. Even, he says, In the context of your tragedies. Even your tragedies can't stop this. Even your tragedies will bring this. One theologian, I won't tell you who he is. Because I don't want you to read him. But I have to be honest. This is a quote. If you pay me enough. I'll tell you who this is. But I won't let you read him. He's not good across the board. But this is a good quote. Speaks. Of. One day. says one day perhaps. When we look back from God's. Throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise. If I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended. If I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us. If I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease. If I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes, That in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, his harvest was ripening. And that everything was pressing on toward his last kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident, yes. I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed. Be still, God says. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. And he'll be exalted among the nations because our Lord Jesus, when he died, ransomed for himself. This is the call to worship today. I hope you're here for it. Revelation 5. Ransomed for himself people, birds, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. All who believe descendants of the first who believed. Abraham. God fulfills his covenant. Though he judges, he fulfills his covenant. And thus you see, since it will take place, since it will happen, and since we're part of that, everything in our lives is significant. Though it may seem small. Every hello. Every conversation. Every time we set up chairs, every reading Bible stories to kids before they go to sleep, even though we don't want to and we're tired and often we fall asleep before they do, it's all significant. It may seem very, very small, you see, but because it's attached to the one who's very, very big, you see, then it grows every conversation, every Bible story, every event, everything, significant. Because we do know, we do know that it will happen. And we needn't despair. See, that's the wonderful hope of Ezekiel. People keep saying, why are you preaching through Ezekiel? Isn't it depressing? No, it isn't. It isn't depressing. Because it tells the truth about the holiness of God. And because Ezekiel tells the truth about the faithful love of God. We don't have to hide our sin. He deals with it. And we can then enjoy the very love of God. Listen. And I know I say this into lives that are hurting, but don't despair. Don't despair. God is being faithful to every promise he ever made. Not even your sin can stop him. That's amazing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that you grant to us tremendous hope in this, that we would believe you, that we would take you at your word Though things seem small and insignificant and even worse than that at times, that still you're at work and still the kingdom is progressing in our lives and throughout the whole world. And thus everything is significant. So I pray, Father, for us that we wouldn't despair, but rather than in great confidence and hope, we would live lives of peace in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty. Because of this we're certain. That Christ has come and that He will come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> as you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that in the office area. Our Sunday school classes will start up in about fifteen minutes. And I remind you of our time on Wednesday evening as well. The response to the benediction is Praise be to God. Amen. Now, one of the reasons I worship is because I'm just astounded at God. I just don't know what else to say to him sometimes other than praise you. You're different than anybody else. And You're just amazing. So the response to the benediction is praise be to God. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, he was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask <clears throat> or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Hallelujah.